Welcome to Islington Miller's Queer. Islington Miller's Queer is a podcast series dedicated to recording the history and the queer individuals who helped shape that history of one of the UK's best loved artistic and cultural centres. Salford's Islington Mill. This is episode number five of Islington Miller's Queer. And for episode number five, I've decided to take it right back to the very beginning. Throughout the course of these interviews going online, one question that uh, keeps popping up from listeners who have never actually been to this space or who are aware of what it is, that question is, what is Islington Mill? So I've decided to sit down with Bill Campbell, who is the owner and the founder of Islington Mill, to get the lowdown on what is Islington Mill, but also the history of how this space came to be, the intent behind the creation of this space, the influences, the ideals behind it, the function of it, what it is here to produce and to document, and also the um, the future of Islington Mill as well. Even now, after 20 years, the space is still developing and flourishing in ways that perhaps weren't even thought of originally when it was founded by Bill. This is episode number five of Islington Mill is Queer. Bill Campbell, welcome to um, Islington Mill is Queer. This is a very important interview because a lot of people have been asking us, what is Islington Mill? So I thought that we should get you in to do an interview with the founder of Islington Mill, or certainly one of the founders, and currently the person who's, how would you describe it? How would you describe your role at Islington Mill now? Oh, my role's changing at the mill uh, now, so I don't know how <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to describe my role now. Okay, but um, yeah, I guess I founded it, and I was here at the very beginning. Okay, so you are Bill Campbell. You are the founder of Islington Mill, and you're very much involved in the direction that Islington Mill is going to be going in in the future. Yeah. But one thing that a lot of people who've been listening to the podcast so far want to know it's a very basic question: What is Islington Mill? <laughs> Um, well, it's a building, but I think it's more than a building in that it's a, a collection of people that have encountered this building and formed a network and a community and have found some sense of home or mm-hmm. expression or purpose or uh, opportunity here mm-hmm. and spent some time here and then often stay connected with the people that they've encountered here. So that's why I'd call it a community and a network okay. of people that have kind of been through the mill mm-hmm. but it's grounded in the fact that we have this building mm. and you know I think it's I, I didn't realize this but I think it's unique in that I own the building and that became important at the beginning but I think it means that you know as artists are often displaced from places and you know there's a international you know, we hear it happening in every major city that artists go into crumbly old buildings and then gentrification happens and then something mm. happens, the building's sold and mm. they get moved on. So, you know, I think Islington Mill is one of the only permanent spaces that's actively trying to resist that and has the potential to resist that. Cool. I mean, is there anything that the people who have come here and that work here, what disciplines would they be in mostly? Um, 
I think that anything kind of you know broadly creative or cultural mm -hmm. and I guess adding in the cultural means that it could be yoga or something like that but generally it's perhaps people who have some kind of creative practice that could be music, ceramics, video, performance, uh, the drag lab, mm -hmm. uh, painters and you know things that might be traditional fine art or visual okay. art but it was always never we never defined what art or creativity was so we don't have a a definition mm. of practice right okay so taking it back a bit rewinding the clock backwards mm. now we'll take it on to the traditional question that i always ask at the start can you tell me bill campbell the first time you saw islington mill how did you discover this place well I saw it because I lived in the council tower block directly opposite so there's a 14 story 1960s block mm -hmm. and my partner at the time had the flat on the top floor that looked directly out here and I was living with him and so I looked out my window and there's this mill and I looked at it every single day there's only there's a primary school and the mill and now there's lots of flats being built but then there was not much else mm. so that's the first time I saw isn't to me it was just part of my daily view yeah if you mean when did i see it as a place of yeah when did that then turn from somewhere that you saw at the window to somewhere like maybe i should go there well at the time i'd um i was a relatively recent graduate from i'd been to st martin's in london and i'd come back home to manchester and was trying to find my way about how to how to be a person in the world, how to make money, how to be creative, how to put... Can we just, what was your creative discipline? I'd studied fashion. Okay. And I'd been doing fashion uh, in kind of clubland, and then I went to study at St. Martin's for three years. And I stayed in London for only about a year, and London didn't really agree with me for mm. financial reasons and privilege and power dynamics and things were probably also at play, but I didn't yeah. quite know the words for that at the time. I felt very alone and out of touch, even in a big city. Mm. Whereas in Manchester, previously before I went there, I was really involved with a kind of club scene, mm -hmm. and so I was hankering to come back. But I was looking for a space where I could make stuff, and I thought I would still make fashion. Mm -hmm. So I'd had a studio in a group that was, at the time, there was a lot of studio groups in old buildings, but they were often like a painting studio or a sculpture studio. Yeah and defined artists as mm. people who probably couldn't make any money from their work mm -hmm. so need cheap space and often they wouldn't accept a fashion person because fashion designers making a design product and there was this kind of weird definition between people that could make money and people that okay. were perceived to need cheap space yeah. but Objects was a studio that was more open than that um, on the other side of town so I was traveling from Salford to the other side of town and one day long story but my mum's car got nicked from outside and oh, that wow. was the kind of catalyst for like I don't need to be going to Ancoats when look there's a building right outside my window that looks a bit like this crumbly old building why don't I go down there mm -hmm. okay it doesn't have a, a group in it but maybe it's mm. worth checking it out yeah form our own group so who did you encounter here then when you first came up well, most of the floors were totally empty and derelict. Okay. Um, there were some builders, and they're still the builders. That, well, an evolution of those builders is still here in the like outbuildings, the mm -hmm. stable building that you see in the courtyard. Um, but at the time, most of the building was empty, except for they had an office on the second floor. So 
there was a really old to let sign on the roof and it looked like it had been there at least 20 years so when I called the number I was surprised they even got an answer and they mm -hmm. said just go down mm -hmm. you'll see the guy who drives the skip around in the courtyard he'll direct you up to this office and they'll they've got all the keys they'll show you what's available yeah so that's what I did so it was very straightforward then relatively yeah 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 didn't need to meet an agent didn't need to do anything just yeah. popped on down and had a look and found this like yeah. crumbly but huge and exciting yeah whole entire floors of a mill it's like well you could have the third floor you could have the fourth floor you could have the fifth floor they're all yeah. empty yeah so how did you well tell me what happened next then where did you take well me and my partner at the time thought well we could form our own little studio a bit like objects and at this price, I can't remember how much it was, but you know, pretty much the same as what we were paying to be part of a group. So yeah, we weren't going to be part of that group, but financially we could have a whole floor. Mm -hmm. Loads of work to do because it had been full of pigeons and flaking paint and just full of crap. Mm. But we could just chip away at that. Mm. So that's what we did. We, it became a kind of long projected thing because we called the agent and said, yeah, we'll have it. And then we said, oh, as we're just next door, could we go in and start cleaning up? even though we'd not got the keys mm. or any of the formalities done. And they were like, yeah, sure. So we went down and started chipping away at stuff and, you know, sweeping up the dead pigeons <laughs> and uh, stuff like that. But this kept on going. So it took like nine months before we actually got the right. lease. So ah. we spent this weird nine months of like going in all excited. Mm. And this place smelled of death hole mm. because we were like dealing with pigeon shit all the time. We were mm. like spraying all this piles of pigeon shit with like, <laughs> uh, antiseptic smelling stuff so it had this weird mixture of pigeon shit smell dust uh, dental and antiseptic I can still smell it now <laughs> <laughs> so just for clarity for yeah. the listeners we are now on the fourth floor which yeah. is the space that you were talking about yeah, yeah. could you just give for people who are listening to this and who have never been to Islington Mill just give a quick description of what what this building and these buildings surrounding it is Okay, so it's a collection of brick-built old warehouse buildings. It's quite old. It's 1823. Oh, wow. That's, that's pre-Victorian. That's mm. technically Georgian, I think. Um, so when this was built, there'd be very little around it. And when it was built, it was probably the biggest thing to be built in a field. Mm. <laughs> it's about six stories high. Um, you know, just windows all along. So just like a monolithic block. But it has these other outer buildings around a courtyard that are smaller. So there's the engine house and a couple of other buildings and a smaller mill and the stables. And it's all organized around a cobbled courtyard. Um, and the main mill, um, part of why it's, it's listed and one of its listings, the apartment being so old, is it was built without using any wood. So when you don't really see it so much now, but each floor is held up by cast iron columns and then brick vaulted ceilings as opposed to what, so that means yeah. there's a lot of columns holding up a lot of weight yeah but one of the reasons it's listed is that was relatively new building technology to be able to build with that amount of weight at that point right so as i mentioned before we are actually on the fourth floor that you were talking about when you first moved in this was the space that you were cleaning out how different is the space now to when you first started preparing it uh it's very different in that you know you just walk through some doors and it was just the entire expanse of the floor right so which it, it's not now it's in rooms maybe. it's in rooms it's split up yeah so at the time it was just like an entire floor some windows were boarded up some weren't some were you know the ones that weren't boarded up were pretty grimy mm. 
uh, there's just crap everywhere. Um, you know, half-built walls, deconstructed stuff, piles of doors. Um, but you could just wander around it, a bit like the fifth floor is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I don't know how big it is. It's about it's about twelve meters <coughs> deep. So as you go through the door, it's twelve meters deep, and then it's got to be forty meters long. Right. Something like yeah. that. I'd say maybe a little bit longer, but I don't know. I'm not um, an engineer, so I don't no. know. But yeah, 40 meters is maybe 50 meters even. I don't know. It's 4,000 square foot. So you just yeah. have this big warehouse, but mm-hmm. with all these columns in it. Yeah. And so it's quite, you know, you, it's far enough to see that there's an end to it, mm-hmm. but it's far enough away for you to be intrigued by yeah. what's at that end. Yeah, totally. <laughs> was, it, was it scary? <laughs> was it spooky? Um, do you are you are you the kind of person who's spooked by kind of like old empty big buildings and stuff? Well, no, because we used to kind of come and stay in here, and we used to have to pretend that we weren't staying in here. So we'd stay overnight, and we'd be scared to put the roller shutter down because if there was a fire or something, we didn't want to be able to not get out. <laughs> right, right, right. So we had this weird rigmarole of kind of you know the day to day life, which was these builders that had been here for ten years, and then we'd come in and we're kind of you know cleaning till all hours of the night and mm-hmm. stuff like that so we spent a lot of time here on my own or just me and my partner mm-hmm. wasn't really spooked by it it's more exciting really cool that's cool i do know from some of the other previous interviews that we've done particularly the one with jane compton mm. that you ended up living here yeah. how how did that come about and what kind of what state was the building in when you decided to move in uh, well, it was still pretty fucked up, really. It was mm. still just like, you know, yeah, we'd cleaned all this stuff out and basically split the entire floor, like, you know, started to build some very temporary walls, just knocked together with bits of timber and board and just split, like, the entire floor with two walls. And so it became, like, three sections. Mm. And you'd just, like, walk through it and there'd be one section you'd walk... Th- and we'd use, like, kind of cheap fabric to mm. just, like, make curtains. So there'd be, like, a bit of a wall and a curtain and you'd kind of go through that curtain there'd be another space and another space. Mm and basically the end where you guys occupy now Mm -hmm. was the end that became the more livable bit yeah because it had a bit of heating in but the heating didn't really work okay um but it didn't have anything else in um so we used those you know like those infrared heaters like you get in like smoking areas that are kind of bright red and they're really warm if you're underneath them Mm -hmm. but as soon as you're not hit by that red light they're really cold Yeah, yeah so we'd be in like kind of you know we'd made like a kind of bed type sofa thing that would just be there in the middle of this quite big room with this red light shining on it. <laughs> but it was otherwise it was fucking freezing. <coughs> so when was this? What was the time period when you actually started living here? So I first saw the mill in the summer of 97. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it took a while to get some legal control and clean up Mm. so the best part of a year so we probably started staying here from 90 summer of 98 onwards okay and how did that like were you i don't know what was the legality of you living here well not legal at all not legal at all (laughs) (laughs) but you weren't squatting it because i'm assuming you were paying rent though or were you yeah, it was paying rent. We had a five-year lease and was paying a commercial rent. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the, that lease didn't allow for us to live here, mm-hmm. but it did allow for us to work here 24-7. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
we were working pretty much 24 7 because we were kind of just making stuff constantly it was mm. that kind of you know i was 20 97 i was 24 mm -hmm. you know graduated by a few years i was in that kind of yeah i got this space it was really exciting like got this space all these piles of crap we can make sculptures at the drop of a hat and we mm. can you know it felt like we were kind of living some kind of war holy <laughs> <laughs> well you kind of were yeah kind of mm. yeah except it was really cold <laughs> no money and nobody got shot and nobody got shot that i'm aware of no no wigs at that point <laughs> how did the um the people who actually owned the building at the time which was the building firm no it wasn't the building oh. firm they were also tenants oh okay i see yeah we were all tenants of three brothers who'd okay. inherited it from their father who'd bought it when it stopped spinning in the 1940s and not really done much with it but let ad hoc businesses come in mm -hmm. they'd come and gone mm. so like off those floors that were available to me there were had like remnants of like 70s offices and they'd mm. still have like the kind of titty calendars in the toilets mm. and things like that from 1980 whatever mm. um so yeah the builders the, the the brothers that owned it, two of them weren't interested at all, and one of them was our direct landlord. So mm -hmm. he was the one that I spoke to most. What was your relationship like with him? It was really pivotal because when it, you know, as soon as we'd signed this lease, kind of woke up one morning and there was a drilling on the wall, and it's a new a new for sale sign was going up. Uh, with a new agent, so not this crumbly one that had just been sat there for 20 years. They yeah. decided to try and sell the building. Yeah. And so from that point, that's when I started engaging with the landlord saying, would you give us the chance to raise the money to buy it? Mm -hmm. And he was like, okay, I'll give you, you know, I'll speak to my brothers, I'll tell them I'm into this idea. And it was, you know, he was pivotal in yeah. allowing the dream to, yeah. to grow. Yeah. You know, he listened. Yeah. That seems really good. And what, what, time period are we talking about when you decided to to look into buying it well from the from the point that for sale sign came on the building so the summer of 98 as well so we were right. living here we'd cleaned it all out mm -hmm. we were living here you know we were quite invested by this point. <coughs> yeah you know paying our rent yeah um there's a lot to lose if it was suddenly bought by Tom Bloxham. For mm -hmm. us, we'd yeah. invested what we could at that point. You know, yeah. we had no money, so we were literally scraping off walls with a little two-inch scraper. There was no sandblasting or yeah, yeah. any of that kind of thing. It was just like, make a little corner clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and make another little corner clean. Um, so, yeah, but we were quite invested. And it was like, I also kind of, you know, got the sense that, you know, I say this quite a lot when I'm asked because I think it's actually a founding principle that I knew that a property developer, mm. of which Tom Bloxham is one very active in this city, were doing a lot of mill conversions for the first time in this city post the bomb yeah. in 96. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a market that hadn't been there before for loft living in Manchester. Mm. And I just knew that one of these developers would buy this building and turn it into flats. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, that'll be me out then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it seemed like let's have a conversation with uh, the landlord and see if we can make something that's not that happen. Yeah. Just for context as well there, we mentioned the bomb, which was an IRA bomb, which was 1996, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which was actually 25 year anniversary this year, which um, I believe nobody died. No. But it did cause a lot of damage in Manchester city centre. But the outcome of that was that it, that seemed to be a time when the city started to get regenerated and a lot of new buildings started to go up and stuff. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, we were talking about the bomb and how like suddenly the city was being redeveloped because places had to be rebuilt. I mean, mm. they weren't like literally decimated, but you know, they had structural flaws in them. Mm. Suddenly, from the ricochet of this bomb, that it meant they had to invest in it, and the millennium was coming up, mm. and. Um, there was a lot of um, money projects being proposed for the Millennium, like the Millennium Dome. Mm. But in Salford, we also had the Lowry that was being built yeah. on Salford Quay. So yeah. big capital projects for like several, you know, 130 million, I think the Lowry cost. Mm. Um, and also National Lottery, you know, that had just been introduced in 1996. So everyone was buying their pound lottery tickets and money was coming through to good causes of which the arts was some mm -hmm. so you know there's three kind of things yeah. that were in place that were like if we don't do something property developers will now take an interest yeah and it's worth having the conversation because one the landlord's listening and if we then go and speak to the kind of people that are building the lowry i.e the arts council and Salford mm -hmm. city council mm -hmm. and tell them there's a great potential here mm -hmm maybe we can get some of this national lottery money or millennium money and within mm. a few years we'll build an amazing yeah art space yeah that is interesting because i was going to ask you well i was going to say that like it seems like i mean you were what 25 at this point 24 25 24, 25 yeah it seems like a massive undertaking for somebody that young but knowing the context now because i think about what i was doing when i was 24 and it's like i was involved in spaces like this but it wasn't nowhere near the organizational level that you're at or just the responsibility of owning it and taking mm. on the ownership of it um so it does seem quite a, a major responsibility to take on at the age of 24 but you've kind of set the context there as well of why that seemed doable at the time because there were all these things going on like the regeneration the lowry lottery millennium coming up and stuff like that um did it work out like that though no. <laughs> <laughs> so no, what, no, what no. happened next? <laughs> well, basically spent three years drinking bottles of wine with a few friends. Um, <laughs> See, so that's what I was doing when I was there before. <laughs> yeah. But we were going, won't it be great when we get some yeah. money and can buy this and where are we going to get the money from? And some of us had some money from, you know, family or properties. And so there was four of us that were going to potentially, you know, had a bit of money mm. in the tens of thousands between us, but all different amounts that felt like it could be a decent deposit of some kind so all of this was massively naive but mm. at the same time not grounded in total you know there was some yeah. foundations there yeah but you know the bits that wasn't there is the experience of knowing how to actually convince people that this is you know mm. that the arts are worth investing in yeah that this could be significant mm -hmm. useful mm. you know and that was from across the board because we had also speak to artists who were in as I say, other studio groups in crumbly old buildings. Mm -hmm. And they were also had a kind of, well, why would we go there? Why would we go to Salford when mm -hmm. we're in Manchester? Or, yeah. you know, why would we go to what you're doing when we're here and we've got another five years on our lease? So, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have to face that for another five years. Yeah. That type of thing. And then on the other hand, there was like Salford saying, but we're building the Lowry and that'll do for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to set another bit of context, I'll come back to the next question I was going to ask in a minute. Um, what was this area like when you moved in and stuff? Because I've lived in here as well, in this area. Mm. And even now, the regeneration that's happening in this area in the last two, three years is madness. It's like, I'm looking at a whole swathe of buildings out there, out that window that weren't there two years ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering, what was this area like in like the late 90s or the year 2000? 
Well, the council blocks that we both of us have lived mm -hmm. in were there. Yeah. So there's two blocks of 14 storeys and then some low-rise houses, mm -hmm. but not many of them. Mm -hmm. And then this, the Chapel Street main corridor that's just got buses running through it and mm -hmm. not, not much else. And then there was all these pockets of other little old 70s buildings that were all derelict and had nothing in, mm -hmm. just waiting for demolition, really. Yeah. So it was pretty much a wasteland, mm -hmm. either of things that were then demolished and cleared and then it became a flat wasteland, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or just these little collections of small buildings. So you said that there was a group of four of you? Yeah. At the start, but now there's only one of you. <laughs> there's only one of <laughs> me, yeah. Of you. What happened? <laughs> Um, essentially, you know, over those three, four years, you know, it was taking a long time. Um, those people had brought a lot of experience, more experience than I had around speaking to local authorities and the Arts Council, but they weren't getting the mess, you know, the noises back that they wanted to hear. Mm. Whereas I was the one speaking with the landlord. And so in some ways I was getting, you know, he was encouraging and I'd built the relationship with him. Mm. So, you know, gradually each one of these people dropped out one by one, taking their cash contribution with them, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, which left only me. Yeah. So I'd kind of gone so far down a route, both emotionally, you know, creatively, also with this relationship with the landlord that mm. I kind of felt, I don't know, I just was wedded to it. Yeah. It seems like quite an unusual, you very rarely hear about these kind of positive landlord relationships. Yeah. So that must have been a big um, boom to have that, actually, that the person who owns the building is keen for this to happen, rather than, surely they, they could have sold, sold it off really quickly. Well, you know, yes and no, in that that brother had two other brothers, and the other two brothers were just like, let's just sell it quick and get the cash. Mm -hmm. And it was that brother that was like, well, I'm speaking to these guys mm. and we were talking about like having some arrangement where he left some money in at one point so there was a bit of a cash incentive too cool um, oh right okay so you could have been invested in it as well yeah it's like right. well we'll buy it for x amount and you yeah. can keep a whatever percentage interest and yeah then, yeah you know you'll either get that as a return i can't remember what the mm -hmm. deal was but it was along those lines mm. and so he was like both yeah this sounds like a nicer thing to happen to this building yeah these seem like interesting young kids yeah <laughs> i guess yeah um and he might get more money eventually than yeah. his, and his brothers didn't need the money yeah in the way or you know wasn't as interested so yeah it's just rare to hear a nice landlord story. <laughs> Hopefully I'm a nice landlord too. <laughs> yes, you've learned. You're keeping the tradition of nice landlordism alive. Um, so, people dropped out. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do own it. So what happened? You did eventually come into possession. What happened there? And when? How long did that process take? Well, again, it was really protract protracted and drawn out. I ended up buying it in two parts. Um, I bought the outer buildings, the smaller ones, mm -hmm. for about 30 grand. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was on a contract that ma made me legally obliged to buy the whole mill within 12 months after. Yeah. For a okay. further 150 grand. Yeah. So I was able to buy those three buildings with the bit of cash I mm -hmm. cobbled together, but I wasn't able to get the 150. Yeah. So that was a weird. Yeah. yeah, and that was 2000, 2001-ish. Right. So it was a weird year where, yeah, I've bought something, I've invested and I've got some buildings, but they're not really mine because if I don't complete, find another 150K mm. and buy this great big monolith, yeah, uh, I lose what I've already invested in. Yeah. So I ended up kind of 
you know, all this time we was constantly going around banks and saying, will you loan us the money? And they were like, mm, no. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, but I eventually borrowed some money off essentially a loan shark, a bridging finance, okay. private individual. Wow, you were that invested in the space. Uh, yeah, <coughs> and I got totally screwed over for, you know, essentially I was charged 100 quid a day in interest. Wow. But it was added to the value of the building. So I wasn't paying that, but I was losing that yeah. in value and had to pay that back eventually. So my 150, these figures aren't necessarily accurate, but yeah. in the realm of 150 plus a little bit more to do something, you know, 20 grand more or whatever, I was eventually able to borrow from this source. I ended up owing 300 grand within three years because I'd right. been running up 100 grand, 100 pounds a day debt Yeah, for, the, for three years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how did that, how did that work out in the end? I mean, you, I, there's no loan shark coming around here. I'm assuming that you sorted that out. Yeah, it did sort that out eventually, but it was a really stressful time because this guy, as easy as it was, he just turned up in his flash car and said, here, sign this, we'll loan you the money. Great, that was pretty easy. But then he was back every month, mm. every three months first, mm. every six months, and then every three months, and then every month saying, where's the rest of the money? Okay, well, you now owe another 25 grand and we'll just add it to the debt. Mm. <laughs> And I was like, fuck, I don't know how to get out of this. Yeah. And the same problem as the bank saying, oh, interesting, but no, we're still there. Yeah. And then some other weird fluke meant that HSBC eventually agreed to lo loan me the money that got rid of that loan shark. Right, okay. But as I say, after three years and after, after years. 100 grand or more of yeah. 100 pounds a day. Yeah. So now we're at about 2002, 2003? So getting to 2002, 2003 and getting to 300 or more grand's worth of debt. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I know from the previous interview with Jane Compton that you were living here as mm. well. Was yep. uh, when did you like when did when was the period that you and Jane and I believe it was your cousin? Oh yeah, my cousin Belinda. Were all yeah, living here on the fourth floor. When was this? Yeah. So what I'd done was I I had used any available money to convert the engine house mm -hmm. um, downstairs. So that was a self-contained little building that I that had now heating and lighting and you know. It, not everything was plugged into one extension lead. It functioned mm -hmm. as a house. And I lived there with my then partner, a different partner to the original one, um, from 2000 to about 2003. Um, and it was then that Jules and Katie, the Ting Tings, uh, were about. And I'd met Mori. Uh, Who uh, is your husband? Who's my husband, mm -hmm. current husband. <laughs> Who's my husband? <laughs> Current partner and husband. Um, yeah, it, he we done. He set up sounds from the other city, and it was the first year of that. And we were doing the after show party, and Jules and Katie, the Ting Tings, had come to say, "Have you got any space?" Mm. And I'd showed them around the mill, and they said we didn't want the mill. They wanted my house that I converted. Mm. So that was the trigger that meant that we decided for sounds from the other city, we'd have the after show party in the house. Mm -hmm. I'd move out. Mm -hmm. And then we'd clean it all up after the after-show party and the Ting Tings would move in. Mm -hmm. And that was the point I moved back onto the fourth floor right, with okay. Jane and my cousin Belinda. And Maury was living in the flats that yeah. uh, where you lived. And mm -hmm. um, so essentially the four of us were living here on the fourth floor again and the Ting Tings were in the house that I yeah. built. Just for clarification there, me and my partner used to live in this two tower blocks outside Islington Mill, Arthur Mill Court. 
and Canon Hussey. They're both 14-storey tower blocks, quite big. And me and my partner Joe used to live in Arthur Miller Court. And you used to live in Canon Hussey, which yeah. is the other one. Um, so tell me when, because from everything I've heard, I believe that Maury coming into the picture was a quite a decisive factor in the development of Islington Mill. Yeah. Can you tell me about that and also when that would have been? So that's around this time, 2003-2004. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, like, I don't want to characterise things by my relationships, but, you know, Joey was my first partner who was there at those founding points mm-hmm. and that had gone sour mm-hmm. as both a relationship and the relationship with the mill and then another partner, Adrian, and that had also... I was in a kind of three to four years relationship cycle. Yeah. <laughs> and I was mainly involved... I'd migrated from fashion into textile design into visual arts. Mm-hmm. So we were doing lots of visual arts stuff around the mill throughout right, okay. these years. Mm-hmm. We'd set up like an annual festival of visual art where we used all buildings around Chapel Street and artists were invited to come in and make like site-specific work and we did like a two-week long show and people mm. would be able to move around it was called Show One it was called Chapel Street Open then it became Show One um, when I met Maury and formed a relationship with him it was like two worlds colliding we were more the same age than my previous partner mm. he was more he had his own record label called Dead Digital and was doing nights we were doing kind of visual arts events and having openings and like we would then start to all go to each other's things and this kind of like uh, you know small music label and small arts thing and all our associated circles of friends kind of suddenly merged and then when Jane joined us I'd known Jane from 10 years previous Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but when Jane joined us she brought like Clubland that joined all of this together so we had visual arts Mm-hmm. Music label uh, and Clubland, yeah, all come together in around uh, 2004, 2005. Okay, and the Ting Tings there as well. So. Yeah, and you know people in all their studios. So we'd move people in to use the building, and you know just did floor by floor into studios. Yeah. So as what you see now began around then, we did a floor each year. Yeah. So you know we'd grown from like. Us, mm-hmm. us and some mates, us and some, you know, a handful of tenants in a corner to a whole floor and three floors and two floors. So around that time, we began to have a community yeah. um, of people. So there is four floors currently working, isn't there? As studios. Yeah. As studios. The fifth floor is currently getting renovated. Yeah. At what point was it like all four floors are open and being used. When was it at its kind of like maximum capacity? Uh, I guess, you know, around that time, mid mid notice, 2005, 2006, okay. 2007. And that's when we started to do the club as well. Yeah. So we've been doing ad hoc parties that started in our house mm-hmm. that we then did a bigger party that started to use the totally derelict ground floor. Mm-hmm. And then we started to do this, you know, the festival had happened three or four years mm-hmm. in a row and we were starting to do more stuff throughout the year. Um, and it was 2008 that we decided to formalize that into a club. Yeah. Uh, on okay. the ground floor. Okay. Because I first came here in 2010 mm-hmm. and I believe that it had just been done up a little bit. Yeah, we got a small amount of Arts Council money to help right. us, yeah. So what was it like? previous to that like what was on originally on the ground floor because that's like that's the one kind of space that everyone moves through who comes to the who comes to the mill 
yeah. is the ground floor. So that's the one that everyone knows pretty yeah. much. So what was that like originally and how is it different now? So originally you'd just go down the stairs and you wouldn't be able to go into the ground floor. You'd go straight out into the courtyard and there was no door onto the street. So mm. you'd come off the street through this big kind of prison-like gate, mm. find a doorway at the bottom of the stairs and you'd just skip the ground floor entirely and go up mm. to whichever floor you're on. And the ground floor looks like a really, that's why people did get their spooky vibes because mm. it had like kind of, it was very blacked out and very dirty windows in the doors but people would sneak look through and it would look yeah. like there was yeah. something dark and damp and sinister <laughs> in there and all the windows had been bricked up and always had been so even though it was a ground floor it felt more like a dingy basement so you know that smell of damp mm, yeah. and dirt and crumbling pain and <coughs> you know you couldn't lean on anything without taking half yeah. the wall with you onto your jacket and, yeah you know the floor's really uneven so you know no lights mm. it was just like kind of stumbling through a kind of what was actually in there was there stuff there was there like leftover 70s stuff or something there was leftover like music kit because um a company called <coughs> amek tak <coughs> amek tak make um made in the 80s like bespoke sound desks for recording studios cool and they've just re-emerged because they came to one of our community days to say you know what's your memories of this place and they the owners of that company turned up saying we were based here in this building wow. and then in the one across the way so they were still there when i was here yeah but they'd used the ground floor to store all these old bits of flight yeah. cases yeah, yeah. and just any old crap that they didn't really need yeah so it's like a junk room for a sound tech so where did all that stuff go? Uh, did you skip it? Skips, bonfires, yeah. <laughs> remade into sculptures, mm -hmm. given away, but people didn't really know how to use it because it was so bespoke. Yeah. Um, but they made things like Bono and Queen and Status yeah. Quo and all these kind of big 80s kind of... Wow, and they're still around? And I wasn't here last Saturday, but Steph was here and said she met them and they came and they'd written this like little history of... Oh my god! That's well, everything I've just told you is came from them. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm going to speak to them. So maybe they'll, maybe they'd like to support some music activity. Yeah, yeah, going yeah. Forward. That'd be great. Cool. So, just to rewind a little bit, this series is called Islington Mill is Queer, and as you are um, one of the founders and the main driving forces behind Islington Mill Bill, what is queerness to you? What does that mean? I think we're still kind of working that out to some degree. Um, I think queerness to me is a broader sense of possibility around how to lead our lives. Mm. I think as queer people, as members of the LGBT plus community, we have had to find our way of being and create our own version of self. Mm. Mm -hmm. I know for me, I spent a lot of my childhood getting messages that I don't belong, that mm. this world doesn't fit me or I don't mm. fit it. Mm. And I think that was a big motivation that drew me towards creativity mm -hmm. in the first instance. So mm. wanting to leave school as soon as possible, just get out of that system and get mm. away from these people that had, mm -hmm. maybe not intentionally, you know, there was intentional bullies, but there was a system that felt very toxic to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought fashion might be a, a place where yeah. queerness and creativity could thrive and it is often for people but it felt very toxic to me when I went and studied that as well yeah so for me queer is about kind of how we reinvent our lives in our own shape for our own purposes mm -hmm. 
without any particular attention to the normative mm -hmm. and that's a really challenging thing to do because I've realized how pervasive the normative is mm -hmm. and I've seen now I'm just turned 48 last weekend you know I'd seen how those normative assumptions had crept into my life over the years even though I thought I was challenging it creatively through things like Islington Mill um, I think I was always wanting to kind of challenge things so we were never like an artist space we we're in anybody's space yeah um, but in terms of queer I guess it had become like I'm a gay man mm -hmm. a white gay man and I drifted into several monogamous relationships for example without really even considering the queer perspective which challenges that yeah and has become much more prevalent in the past few years and you know myself and Moy have really adopted that as as part of our reinventing how we understand ourselves mm -hmm. as queer people um and so i've wanted to bring that into the mill much more um clearly mm -hmm. and you know because i think like the mill has a number of resources available and previously naturally that had involved a lot of the queer community because yeah. of just friends associates affiliates people drawn to the space mm -hmm. um maybe it had a bit of shame like if we're trying to get arts council money can we say we're a queer space yeah yeah are we allowed to yeah. get public money to be queers yeah uh maybe we shouldn't mention that yeah and also it's a business model you know money was short all mm -hmm. the time so we always had to just take whoever mm. <laughs> was available to pay for that space at that point and I think we were lucky that the building kind of self-selected so if you really weren't suitable you probably wouldn't come yeah. here yeah uh, but it wasn't saying you know you have to be an artist and you have to be a queer artist um, and I think that meant that a lot of the resources we have available may have become quite white male and straight but alternative mm -hmm. or uh, whatever term they might attach to them experimental noise avant-garde yeah. whatever it might be and so in some sense i think there's a certain amount of queerness in that mm -hmm. but it's not queer in terms of the way i interpret it yeah so I, currently i'm trying to mesh those two things together in my own mind mm -hmm. and you know that is only my own mind not that of the organization but we have put queer as a fundamental pillar to our heritage lottery yeah because heritage lottery allows us to look at this is an 1823 mill, but it also allows us to look at what we're talking about here. How did it become an art space and who did it? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. me and my sexuality and all the other, lots of the other associates like Emma, mm -hmm. uh, Riv, Jane, mm -hmm. we're all queer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think, you know, if Isn't a Mill has a, it's through those collaborators that have brought so much, it, if it has a queerness, in its identity even if it's not explicit it's through those people yeah so how can we make that more explicit and we did put that in the heritage lottery to say this is something we want to explore make clearer document yeah um hence this series hence this series <laughs> and how do we interpret that going forward mm -hmm. i think it is now perhaps important to look at the resources we have say like the fifth floor we're about to build mm -hmm. and direct that in some more proactive way towards people that are actively seeking to find new ways of doing things mm -hmm. and for me that is part of most queer people's identity in that they're actively seeking how to be them mm -hmm. and this is what I hope the mill has always been trying to do so it's a slight shining the light on it and it's a slight bit of clarity but it's actually doing what it's already done it's just maybe trying to give it a bit more 
shape, context, something. Coming out. Coming out as yeah. queer, yeah. yeah. Isn't something else coming out as queer with a... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Right, so um, we have talked about the clearance of the ground floor and how that was turned into a club slash gig slash gallery space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, I should ask about the gallery space then. Mm. What was the impetus behind that? Um, well, we'd always had like visual art stuff. And like I say, we'd done these visual arts festivals that were more like ad hoc, use a crumbly old space mm. and like fill the whole attic with feathers and mm. make an installation. But it was also like lots of people were making smaller work. Um, so having a space that was more usable for that was an impetus. But also uh, all of, lots of these things are done in partnerships. So um, some guys, uh, Sophia Crilly and Mark Kennard were wanting to set up their gallery in a kind of uh, curatorial way, but also in an attempt to sell work. Mm-hmm. So they came on board and got a bit of money from uh, somewhere to kit out a kind of cleaner, white, cubey space. Yeah, yeah. So th- things like that. Mm-hmm. We've never had a particular kind of, like they had a curatorial awareness and knowledge and agenda. Yeah. I or we have never had a like, we want to yeah. show this kind of art and we want to make, yeah. make it relevant or a business in any way. So the kind of like functions of different parts of the spaces within the mill was a collaborative process as well of like so like you said that the, the gallery coming about was kind of somebody who had that skill set within the mill yeah develop that um but what about the the bar and the gig slash club venue how did that come about well i guess the same thing like yeah. jane had you know jane and maury and maury's brother mark had lots more experience of running clubs mm-hmm. and putting out music and doing gigs mm. we were all like clubbing and partying and going to you know Mori and I met at a club called Club Suicide mm-hmm. it was a real kind of electro clash queer dress mm-hmm. up but grimy night in yeah. town um, you know we were all doing that and I was from like kind of 80s club kid vibe so I've been clubbing since I was like 16 in Manchester mm-hmm. and you know that was a real kind of the Manchester wave so I, yeah. I felt like I kind of been in different places at different times Yeah. but they really brought how to do that here to it Mm-hmm. So, you know, like the festival, Samson of the City, was Murray and Mark's festival. It yeah. wasn't mine or Islington Mills. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything that happens in Islington Mills is people wanting to do that because they love what they do. Yeah. Not because me or anyone else says it should happen. Right, cool. Um, one major thing that has been going on, though, in the time that I've been spending here is the renovation work. Yep which is something that I wanted to ask you about, and the Arts Council funding. Yeah. So it's been quite a long process. <laughs> <laughs> Just so everyone knows, there's a thunderstorm happening outside. Um, at opportune moments, dropping in little sound effects. But um, So can you tell us about that? About how... Why did you decide to approach the Arts Council for funding, mm-hmm. and how has it gone? Okay, um, well firstly, we, having had that whole kind of like, you know, millennium by the building kind of conversation and realised that it just was going nowhere, mm-hmm. we really went into a phase of, fuck it, let's just do what we want, mm-hmm. let's not bother with the Arts Council or any funding, yeah. got the building now, let's just 
build it the best we can, mm -hmm. break all the rules, don't do it properly, but just get it done because mm -hmm. no one's going to help us. Mm. And I think like that involved a huge amount of activity. So all these kind of visual arts festivals, I was saying, like show one, like that was all, I guess that was coming from a place of like, and quite a naive place, I suppose, maybe even a kind of vibe that only happened at that point I don't know but a kind of belief that maybe creative people have is if people could just see how creative and exciting this is the way I do mm -hmm. surely someone that can help make this happen because they've got more money than I have or they've got more skills or yeah. they can open some doors will just see how amazing this is and make life easier yeah. and that just never happened yeah. <laughs> um, so we just cracked on with just doing stuff because we wanted to do it and we loved it. Doing stuff because people came to us saying, can we do it? And we just said, yeah, of course. And doing stuff because we still thought, well, one day we'll build up a body of work that will mean that people will help out. Um, and so when you said you came here in 2010, we just got a little bit of money. It's mm -hmm. like we were encouraged, like, you know, we'd done all this stuff, all these parties and events, this music festival, these visual arts festivals. We had all these studios. And it's like, well, you could make this more accessible, mm. like, uh, ability accessible mm -hmm. and get some improved toilets with a small grant from the Arts Council so we did that mm -hmm. but we had to kind of formalise and form an organisation and get a bank account which is before it was just we used to use like cash and tokens and just wake yeah. up the following morning and be a big pile of cash on the table <laughs> and we just go great we can now book another band Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> we yeah. can just plan the next event mm -hmm. we did formalise it enough to get that um, but the big money you're talking about that's finally being spent now kind of yeah. didn't happen for another four years or so yeah. and that was like again we weren't particularly interested and we have no regular funding from the arts council or even any project funding mm. um so we'd got this small amount of money that gave us a ramp and some better toilets and then they came back to us saying now we've got some more large capital of like kind of half a million pounds upwards mm -hmm. you know we've seen what you've been doing for the past 15 years at this point mm -hmm. <laughs> um you've had your 50k or whatever it was and you've spent that and that's worked out well you might want to think about this mm. so we did and we went in but we failed we didn't quite get there at round one what year was this just so we have it on the timeline it's about uh, 2014 15 no it's probably 2012 oh, okay. 13 like round one right uh, but we didn't get round one. Yeah. So we then had to wait for round two, which was another year after that or something. Yeah. So that's okay. probably 2013, 14. Yeah. And through a technical glitch, we couldn't apply because of some box we couldn't tick. Mm -hmm. um, and then because of that being a major fuck up by round three, we could apply and eventually we got it. So we didn't get it till 2015, 16. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of four or five years and three rounds of Arts Council funding you know and three four years of my life I'll never get back yeah just to get to a point where we'd raised a million yeah but that was only less than half of what we needed for a two million pound project yes so the reason it's then took from then to now is because we've had to raise the other million and a half match funding the match funding yeah the m words which are here so which I remember <laughs> so well from that period of like Match funding, match funding. Yeah, um, and we thought it would be easier because yeah. we got the million. Yeah. But there was things we didn't know, like kind of the way we structured it. Like we weren't a charity. Yeah. We're a community interest company. You know, the way we'd structured it for the Arts Council is I would be leasing just the top floor. So the studios as a business I would retain. Mm -hmm. Whereas Heritage Lottery, who's since come in, mm -hmm. don't work legally in that way. They're interested in the... the Arts Council are interested in the project. Mm -hmm. 
Heritage Lottery are interested in the historic building. Yes. So they want to preserve, what they fund needs to preserve the entire building. Mm. But these were kind of challenges for me, having like literally got the debt that mm -hmm. I'm still having, that I'm still paying off. Yeah, of the original debt of buying the building. The original debt of yeah. buying the building, yeah. plus bits of extra that I've borrowed here and there to yeah. do those studio floors back in the early days and yeah. this, that and the other. I still owe like, I've got three different mortgages with yeah. several amounts that I'll probably never pay back <laughs> attached to them. Um, so, you know, these are considerations about how things are structured, but ultimately mm -hmm. what it's meant is I've leased now the entire building mm -hmm. to the, what's known as Islington Mill Arts Club, mm -hmm. which is the entity reformed back in 2008 just to run the club. Right. Now runs the entire building right. and has a 25 year lease on the entire building. And mm -hmm. that just kicked in last year. Right. But that's the structure that's allowed Heritage Lottery and the other money to finally come in. But we okay. didn't know what we didn't know at the time. Yeah. We, so we were floundering around trying to raise the match funding, not yeah. realizing we were the wrong shaped peg for the wrong yeah. shaped hole, if you know what I mean. So could the process have been a bit shorter had you known that? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting, but at least it's happening now, though. Because I was going to ask, how did you get the match funding? Um, so... To, just to explain it again, you got the match funding through the Heritage? There's Heritage Lottery, there's yeah. Arch Architectural Heritage Fund, and there's now this last bit of European money, there's Salford mm -hmm. City Council money in there, mm -hmm. there's Arts Council. Mm. I think that's, I hope that's them all, because I should <laughs> thank and credit them all. Yeah, but shout out. To be honest, I'm done with it all, because, yeah. you know, that is the it's work that I've been doing for 10 years that is not the work I set out to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not my skills, it's it not what I'm good at, it's not what I wanted to spend my life doing. It does sound like a logistical headfuck, to be honest, like yeah. having to <laughs> go through all of that. But I mean, on the on the other side, it's happening now. It is happening now. As you can hear, well, no, that's thunder you can hear, but as you can hear in some of the other interviews that we've done... Um, that renovation is happening, and that's happening on the roof and on the floor above us. Yep. Um, so, let's turn the conversation towards your vision of the mill for the future. Yeah. And what is the renovation that is happening? And basically, what is your vision of the mill for the future? Okay, so the renovation that's happening is turning the last remaining floor that is still open. So when I said how it was when I first came here was a big open expanse with crumbly paint on the walls and mm -hmm. you know stuff that hadn't been touched in 30 years and cobwebs that go yeah, with that. Yeah. The fifth floor has been like that throughout yeah. this time. Yeah. And it brings that and the attic space into use. And So there's actually another bit over the fifth floor as well. Yeah, actually is, in the eaves of the roof yes. that has like timber trusses and timber floorboards. Yeah. So that's the only timber bit. Yeah. Uh, in the whole building. Um, and that's never been usable because it's always had a leak here and there. Mm -hmm. That's another story, as you know, at the moment. Mm -hmm. But um, it's always not been used for that reason. We did use it in different ways. We've had some amazing gigs, amazing photo shoots, amazing exhibitions up there. Um, but the intention there is to build a residency space. So it's going to be one giant apartment. So a space where you'll still be able to walk in and have a really big sense of space mm. uh, of the old space and then there'll be nine bedrooms eight bedrooms that people can stay in mm -hmm. and originally it was going to be because we used to run a B&B &B, mm -hmm. uh, in one of the outer buildings and that was great when we were running the club because anyone wanting to do something could stay over so whether it's a touring band just for that night mm. or like Sam Abita Music Residency would bring like uh, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth and stay with us for a mm. week it's that model of like isn't it great when people come here mm. and get to stay here 
and that there is no closing time, mm. that there is no kind of back room or after bit, that it's all kind of just yeah. part of life here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like if you've got a studio, there's people coming and going to be performing and all of that. That was its heyday of where all this kind of like living creativity with it was at its height mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. having the club and all these things. So, um, you know, it's about referencing that and a space that people that don't have studios here can come and be in. Mm. But we've learned a little bit from COVID because all that model of people moving around and just being here for short term, whether it's Airbnb to make money or an artist residency, obviously vanished overnight mm-hmm. for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's turned our attention towards something a bit more long term. But also it's because we know that people living here, I think everyone who bases themselves here, here hopefully has a sense of home mm-hmm. about being here. Mm-hmm. Uh, about possibility and comfort and safety and uh, a sense of being themselves and within an accepting community. Mm-hmm. But people that live here, because we do have two apartments, they tend to be people who know the place yeah. 24-7. Mm-hmm. Um, and they fulfil a really important function, or have done historically over the years. Not just simple things like they'll put the bins out, but they will greet people and they will know what's available and they'll have kind of a different access to the resources of the mill yeah yeah so they'll go oh well let's just have a barbecue because we can just we live here we can just mm-hmm. put a barbecue in the courtyard they don't have to ask anybody they just do it yeah okay. um that kind of access to time and resources just happens from people living here and then everyone feels like this is a homely place because some people that live here are having a barbecue in the courtyard mm-hmm. So kind of drawing on that and expanding it a little bit, I'd love for that type of energy to always be present at the mill. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I'd love for the people that live here to have that confidence and access to the resources that we have. And by resources, I mean the courtyard mm-hmm. or the club mm-hmm. or the junk. Or the lightning. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big, big old uh, thunderclap. Yeah. Um, we don't have many resources in terms of cash, but we do have resources in terms of space. Yes. And I think it's and people who have jurisdiction over those spaces. And also um, talent. And talent, yeah. A talent pool of all the various different creators who actually work here and stuff. Which made like, you know, an artist coming to stay, they've come from San Francisco, wherever they are, and they come and they're only here for a week or two, but they want to mm-hmm. make an amazing track. Mm-hmm. And it's those people that live here know that Niall's an amazing producer yeah. and just go and have a chat with him and knows that you'll be wherever you'll be mm-hmm. it's that kind of knowledge yes. resource and talent and connection and awareness mm-hmm. and willingness to go oh you've just arrived from san francisco and we're all going out to yeah. bollocks tonight so why don't you tag along yeah it's that type of thing where i think there's a real i think that's the kind of thing that an organization that the arts council recognizes as in members of staff and a board and all these kind of organizational things does up to a point but does differently to how people live here yeah so i'd love the future of the mill that when it comes to that kind of creative living the creative life and the resources we want attached to it that a kind of a family or tribe of people that call this place home have jurisdiction over that Mm -hmm. and that all the shitty nightmare logistical uh, funding and money and legal stuff is dealt with by an organisation that can do that okay. and that they're relatively separate okay. and that ultimately this place generates people that are 
the most comfortable they can be in achieving what they want to achieve and therefore achieve the best things they can do. Cool. That sounds great. Um, Wouldn't it be great? Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> one kind of coming to the end now, but one slightly more in on a practical level kind of thing I want to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the ground floor at the moment, what used to be the club space, gig space, mm-hmm. isn't. It's nope. currently a printing workshop run by Salford Makers, I yep. believe. Is there any plan for another music slash club slash probably bar space in the mill or I would love there to be I think yeah. not having that we've lost a massive cultural asset mm-hmm. I think it was a place where people in the building met I think it's a place where people from outside the building locally got chance to get introduced to the mill mm. the number of times I'd be having a cigarette with somebody in the courtyard they'd say what is this place and the whole conversation had start mm. and you know Two months later, they'd moved in, and three months later, they were running a new festival. Mm. <laughs> um, that's how things gestate and happen here. Mm. And without the club, we don't have that. And it draws people in from all across the world. And when a show's on, people are promoting it, so they're saying, this is happening at Islington Mill. Without a space, we don't have any of that. Mm. Um, we are working with Partizan, mm-hmm. uh, who are on the site next door. And I think they're really exciting and fulfill part of that function that we used to alongside the White Hotel and other places like that, that mm-hmm. um, we occupied a similar kind of space to them. Um, maybe there's a chance to do something different because they're doing those things really well. Mm-hmm. Um, Just for clarity, when you say the space next door, where is that? Uh, well, we've been talking about <coughs> the historic Islington Mill site, the collection of brick built buildings that were mm-hmm. built in 1823 onwards. Next to it is like an 80s industrial estate with like big like warehouses that articulated mm-hmm. lorries would have gone in. We've got access to those and Partizan and a number of artists and collectives are in there and that's where more events have been happening recently. Mm-hmm. The reason we stopped the club was Emma and Vez, who'd done a brilliant job of running it, had decided to call it a day mm-hmm. uh, for their own reasons. We knew we'd be building at some point and it was mm. imminent, but we thought it was more imminent than it was. Yeah. So it didn't seem appropriate to do anything else in there. So Salford Makers going in there seemed like a an easy yeah. transition. We do now have space in New Islington Mill that will be complete and maybe Salford Makers might move into one of those spaces and maybe Partizan may move into that space, possibly. Mm-hmm. There are other spaces and other people. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm less about who's where mm-hmm. and more about how do we make sure that Salford, and not, not just Islington Mill, but Salford, this place that has given us such an opportunity, continues to give opportunities. Yeah. So to me, to me, that's cultural and strategic and political rather than building management. Yeah. It's about how do we make sure that people still feel that, like it's possible to set up a venue in a place like this. Yeah. And that those venues are done not just by those people but by other people yeah (laughs) anybody arguably or ideally that anybody could come up and set up a venue or do a gig or an event yeah without killing themselves Mm -hmm. without killing anybody else um and um you know learn something and do it well and add Mm -hmm. something to the experience of everybody um that seems like a great place to end it but i just want to say that islington mill has done that for people already so hopefully moving forward it'll do that even more yeah Mm -hmm. i do too thank (laughs) you thank you